Commonly known as the Opvac Cast. Uh, what episode is this? I have no freaking idea. Thirty-four somewhere. Thirty-four. Yeah, that sounds right. Thirty-four. Uh, yeah. Today, uh, in honor of our our suicidal experience uh, last episode with David Ayer's uh, modern classic, we are looking <laughs> back in time uh, to an era where. The comic industry was in flux, and uh, they they sure didn't know how to make movies out of them just yet. Uh, it, it was a really interesting time for for comics in general, and certainly comic book films. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine now where they're dominating the box office uh, every summer, uh, and it seems like an unstoppable juggernaut that that must have existed forever. But uh, not too long ago was a very different landscape where you had uh, Marvel Comics uh, flirting with bankruptcy and selling all their properties to the highest bidder. And you had a young fella named Todd McFarlane starting an upstart company company in Image Comics to compete with kind of the bloat of the two big comic companies. So, yeah, and after Burton's Batman, uh, it feels like a lot of studios were trying to capitalize on a lot these properties and had no idea how to do it. Uh, so, without further ado, I want to introduce the folks joining me today. We have uh, Jake Trapila all the way out in California. Good evening, Adam. How are you doing? I am surviving. We're, we're making this happen under extenuating circumstances, so we're, we're going to make the best of it. Now we are. Uh, also joining me is Sean Glennis. From Lansing. I, I wasn't going to mention. It wasn't worth mentioning. <laughs> I'm surviving as well. Uh, okay. Bringing that usual enthusiasm. Uh, not even a pun to be found. I'm drowning here. <laughs> and from Louisville, Kentucky, we have Jack Eason. Hey, Adam. How's it going? Uh, uh, it's going. It's going. It's going to be a long night. <laughs> okay, so speaking of long nights, I think we all had quite a few this week as we did our prep work for this podcast, which involved, uh, we narrowed it down to 12 films that, that kind of vary in uh, scope and budget, and uh, we kind of had three different categories uh, that we broke it down into, and one of the first ones is probably the strangest one which is there was this uh, odd fascination with bringing long-extinct pulp properties to the big screen in the 90s. Uh, One prominent example of that was, I think we're going to try and go a little chronological on this one, with uh, Dick Tracy, because that's a strange one, and probably the most successful and prominent example of this. Uh, Who watched Dick Tracy? I did. And what did you think of that one, Drake? Well, I Dick Tracy has always been one of my favorite films from as far back as my childhood. Um, I revisit it every so often and was looking forward to seeing it again for this. It had been quite some time since I actually last watched it, 
but I found that it held up really well. It's very uh, exciting, enjoyable. It's essentially a huge passion project by Warren Beatty, but I think under his direction, he makes a very um, entertaining comic film. Yeah, I also watched this. I don't think either of you other guys did. Am I wrong? No, uh, I've, I, I've seen it. Uh, I watched it semi-recently. It was actually only a couple of months ago that I watched it completely separately. Again, kind of because I saw it as a kid, really enjoyed it, lingered in my memory of something I kind of enjoyed, and that was better than the, the norm for those kind of projects. So I, I saw it fairly recently, and I would agree with Jake. It really actually does hold up. It's actually a, a solid film. Yeah, I also saw it uh, in my childhood. I think for some reason, I don't know if it was time-wise and aesthetically, but I kind of like tie it to who framed Roger Rabbit. Sure, sure. I suppose you could... Uh, Bob Hoskins' character kind of feels like a Dick Tracy type in the hard-boiled sort of playing with noir tropes. Yeah. And everyone has that cartoonish appearance. Sure, sure. It is, uh, yeah, I, I had not seen it since you know, I was probably five years old or something of that nature. It, it is a film I really enjoyed as a child and had just never really had occasion to revisit. It's, uh, it's a film I, I always felt like kind of, I'm surprised you don't see it more often. Like, it doesn't exist on cable television or anything. It, it seems like it's tailor-made for that sort of thing. Hey, it's uh, not talked about much, which you know, it, it is kind of film that I feel has got a kind of weirdly unwarranted anonymity at this point, considering the cast. I mean, it's it's not exactly short on big names. Yeah, it's not even considered as a like a cult classic or anything. Which is strange, especially because it has such a unique visual style to it, and... Yeah, it obviously tried to do that three-color style that was uh, featured in the comics at the time, but it's a very stark film. I mean, occasionally the seams show, but uh, what they attempted to do practically is is something that is very admirable. Uh, it's like when Frank Miller uh, remade The Spirit, uh, well, remade, mm-hmm. I, I guess he, he adapted The Spirit a few years back, and that had a very similar visual style, and, and you were kind of expecting sort of that Robert Rodriguez, but but done in that sort of three-color thing, which it, it was not at all. It was just a, a huge Sin City disaster that no one should see. But but I, w- I was hoping for something more in the vein of Dick Tracy when that was announced, but alas, was not to be. Yeah, and I think part of the problem with the spirit is that the story is just so completely muddled, and all the performances tend to fall flat. And Dick Tracy, excuse me, Dick Tracy actually feels very vibrant, and is is actually at times, you know, very fascinating to watch. Even even just on a like formally, it's one of the I think best constructed films to ever resemble a comic book from which it's based on. Yeah, I mean, it's isn't Vittorio uh, Vittorio Storaro shoot this? I think he was the director of photography. That sounds um, right. Yeah, was, I mean, obviously he's a like he shot Apocalypse Now, The Last Emperor. He's kind of one of the major names in in cinematography. So that's a huge name to have behind the camera. And I think what I, what I really remember liking about the film is that. I think Beatty balances his elements extremely well in that he plays Dick Tracy. He kind of underplays him almost. He kind of pulls it back. He doesn't take center stage to try and kind of outact everyone else. He's happy enough to just kind of be the the steely-jawed protagonist and let Al Pacino and the other villains really 
really let them kind of swing around and do what they need to do as a kind of cartoonish villains. Sure, sure. And uh, thank God he did not attempt to uh, out-chew Al Pacino. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it would have been gone from a passion project to just a very awful vanity project if he even considered doing that. Much like Frank Miller's The Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Moving on from that, I'm not positive on the chronological here, but we're going to go to the Rocketeer because it seems like kind of the natural place to go next. Uh... This one I did not watch, so I'm going to let you guys duke it out. It's another one of those films I saw kind of ad nauseum as a kid, and I loved it, but I have not revisited it recently. So, uh, How does this one hold up? Uh, not so good, I would say. Um, it's I, Again, I hadn't seen this in the longest time, so I, I watched this fresh for this podcast. It's kind of, I don't know, it's a, a weird kind of project that it's very well put together. It's clearly well budgeted. It's got a lot of a kind of a nice period details. Again, it's kind of evoking old school Hollywood mores. But I just, I don't know who this film is for. It doesn't seem vibrant enough for kids. And then the old schooly Hollywood elements that it references, I don't like, I can't imagine older people showing up for this movie. It seems kind of oddly kind of in between markets and a little bit stagey and lifeless for me, honestly. Uh, anyone else check this one out? Yeah, I did. Um, I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I, I had like a certain nostalgia for it, but nothing too strong. But um, it's weird. It's uh, Yeah, it, it does feel stagey, and it's like in love with this old Hollywood feeling. And um, I don't know... Uh, it's constantly homaging these classic American films, but um, Billy Campbell is just a, I mean, always in just about everything, he is just like a block of wood. He's just a pretty face and doesn't have a whole lot to offer, uh, but thankfully there's a pretty nice cast around him here. Yeah, I think the supporting cast really help out with this one. There's a lot of, and particularly um, for someone who kind of, if you grew up in the 90s, I just there's a lot of faces that I kind of recognize from TV, from those kind of same shows. I think like the dad from uh, Lois and Clark, the Dean Cain, Terry Hatcher series shows up at one point. It's like, yeah, I remember the 90s. <laughs> yeah, this was a, of all the films we watched, this was actually one of the ones that I did not grow up with as a child. And I actually didn't see it for the first time until about five years ago, I would say. And when I watched it then, I re- distinctly remember really appreciating it more than I actually enjoyed it. Like, I thought it was well-crafted, and the supporting performances were great. I particularly liked uh, Timothy Dalton as the villain, and I think Jennifer Connelly is always great to show up in anything. Um, but I just watched it, and I was like, oh, yeah, that was very nice. And then watching it again for this, um, I, I think Jack nailed it perfectly. I'm not quite sure who it's for or what its purpose is, really. I mean, it's directed by Joe Johnson, who's kind of made a career aping off of, like, the success of um, Indiana Jones films. So it it ha- certainly looks and feels like that with the throwback to Hollywood in a different era. But, and, you know, yeah. I can certainly certainly appreciate people who grew up with it, and so they have some, you know, love for it that's rooted in nostalgia. But um, it just doesn't work like that for me with The Rocketeer, sad to say. It's it's uh, and it's it's interesting. I mean, it's really it's old old school Hollywood. I mean, it's Myrna Loy and Errol Flynn. You know, it's it's 
So these aren't the kind of films that even parents bringing their kids to this film. It's not even their generation nostalgia. It's aping on. It's it's you know a generation before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and it's it's kind of like for kids. They're, I don't think they're going to appreciate the Hollywood elements or particularly care about them. The Rocketeer as a hero himself is just, I mean, he's just to do with a jetpack on his back. It's its like he can fly, but that just seems kind of banal even, you know, I mean, his superhero is fly. He can fly. That's his sole superpower pretty much is that he's able to just fly with a guy thing on his back. Other than that, he doesn't seem particularly witty or clever or interesting, as Sean said. Um, he's just mm-hmm. sort of there. Like, there's just no, there's nothing to really push this film ahead. It just kind of, it just wanders around in kind of pretty sets until it wraps up with some Nazis. <laughs> hey man, uh, apparently those jetpacks were gonna win the Great War. There, I don't know. Uh, not, that's one of the few things I remember is that like jetpack Nazi propaganda film and. Uh, yeah, there's like a Zeppelin. Doesn't it end on a Zeppelin? It it does, yeah, which it kind of reminded me of a James Bond movie that was more entertaining that was released a few years prior to it, A View to a Kill. But, um, yeah, it's, it's it doesn't really seem to make that much of a sense. I mean, it's, like I say, it just it just feels like it's it's mixed up a little bit. It doesn't, it's kind of evoking old world elements, but it never, it never seems exciting for kids. And I mean, fundamentally, this is a kid's film. I don't think there's any doubt about that. That's really what it's pushing towards. Yeah, there's also that uh, Lothar henchman who is like yeah. modeled after one of the henchmen from Dick Tracy, but um, he kind of feels real out of, out of place in this film. And it's not that I don't like him as an effect, but I just, when everyone else is, is completely normal looking, I mean, where did he come from? You know, like at least it's in Dick Tracy's world, it really helped. It really works. It's true. Yeah, he's a gigantic guy with a weird, grotesque caricature face. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's, it's true. He, he, everything else is pretty normal here. I mean, it, it kind of 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 its time. There's no great deformities or mutants or monsters or anything. Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting element to it. I suppose he's one of the more memorable elements of the film, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, he doesn't uh, he doesn't really gel in. I gotta say, I don't remember this character at all, so it might not be one of the more memorable uh, aspects. Uh, uh, that Zeppelin. He's the guy with the face. Oh yeah, that guy. Um, yeah. So apparently, Dick Tracy. You might think we're done talking about pulp revival because it, it's such a niche thing that surely not more than two could exist from this era. But no, we're not even close to done because I, I guess Dick Tracy just set off some sort of like fever in the. Uh, executives of Hollywood, because we also have uh, Alec Baldwin's starring vehicle, The Shadow, which I, this is, I, I believe, the only film on, on our list here that I have never sat through. I tried to probably six or seven years ago, because I thought it would be entertaining. It was on HBO or something of that nature, and I got about ten minutes in and said, no, this is not for me. Uh, who Who sat through this thing? I did. Sean, uh, is the shadow, I don't know, did it brighten your day? Um, no, it was actually, I was kind of looking forward to it because um, it was one that I remember watching as a kid and my mom specifically liked it because I think she watched the TV program, but uh, the production quality was just not good. And then also there was just like a lot of like cheesy um, acting and, and lines and there was like some... Interesting neo-noir stuff, but it, it never really hit home. It always felt too much like artifice um, in a way that didn't 
didn't really work for me. Um, and then, as Jack pointed out um, off air, there's some some. Uh, well, I guess it's running through a lot of these, but there's uh, some uh, Asian mythology stuff that doesn't really uh, work well or sit right. There's there, there's a weird vein of kind of Asian exoticism through a lot of these films. It's kind of something that I just happen to notice as a running theme as you watch them. There's kind of, if you want exotic and and kind of uh, mysterious, you just get the three Asian character actors that Hollywood has on stock and you put them in there and put a weird you know put fake facial hair on them and that's that's your your stock and trade and the shadow is absolutely laced with that it's all based out there i mean it opens in a an opium field in tibet or whatever and it kind of works from there um i would i would say though actually i actually kind of enjoyed this one i'd never seen this film before honestly um and it's it's not a, it's not a great film but it it did keep me entertained i kind of like i like the early it has some like this is made in 1994 it has some real old school computer graphic effects which i think are actually integrated pretty well they're kind of just used for a couple of unusual little mysterious visions they're not like all over the place uh, unlike some other films we will get to discussing later on we're um, going to save that one for last because yeah. you know, it could take up the entire <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed tune in folks it's going to be good so um, The Shadow is uh, I mean I just thought it was it, it's an unusually dark film I think it's, it's darker than almost any of the other films here and it's still a PG-13 movie but uh, it seems to have a strange focus on civilian casualties and you know uh, I mean it opens with Alec Baldwin as a opium lord and he just he has some guy summarily executed in front of him you know he to, to shoot another guy, they shoot through an innocent man to the other guy. And it's kind of, that's not even, he's a bad guy, and then he becomes the shadow through a series of events, then he starts to, to work for the other side. But yeah, I mean, there's this weird focus in the film on, on kind of innocent bystanders getting killed by the bad guys, and they don't even comment on it. Later on, a taxi driver just gets drives into a gas station, and everything blows up, and he's, he's under hypnosis, and yeah, it's it's kind of just a weirdly kind of violent film on that level, um, for what it is. And I think a part of that was you know kind of melded in with the with the old world New York, um, that they portray in it. It just it was it, it kept me somewhat interested. I don't I wouldn't say this is a bad film for me. Um, it's not quite excellent. The Shadow himself is a bit of a like I just I don't think he's a particularly compelling character. His whole mystery of mind and that he can hypnotize people is kind of it's not a very compelling superpower, really. He fights against the whatever the son of the something of Genghis Khan, who also hypnotizes people. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's okay, you know, like for a movie. But I did like I could never imagine this kicking off a franchise. I can't imagine anyone watching this and hoping for more shadow adventures. Which is inaccurate. This this was and the, the film we're about to talk about. They were both the. Uh supposed to be kind of tent poles for franchises at the time. And they both failed fantastically because they're pulp properties that no one under the age of 60 gave a rat's ass about. Uh, I don't know if anyone else saw it, but I had an important point before we moved on. Uh, does this film star James Hong? Uh, yeah, doesn't it? I can't, I've been watching so many of these I can't even remember anymore. Doesn't he show up and he shows him like three of the films we watched here? <laughs> I was going to say, if I'm... not, is, does it star Victor Wong? <laughs> are we are we starting to break down the the incredible the rep 
the incredible <laughs> repertoire of Asian actors that you see in any Hollywood film. Or perhaps Pat Morita. Pat, yeah. You know, I don't think he, honestly he he didn't really go that well. Um, I've not really seen him in much stuff outside of the Karate Kid and that one with Jay Leno. Yeah, he was in that Jay Leno movie. Yeah. Which I can never remember the name of, which doesn't really pose much of a problem because no one talks about that film. Well, perhaps we'll remedy that someday. <laughs> I just checked. Jang Hong, James Hong is in the shadow. Ah, yes. That's very important. James Hong must have like 700 listed credits on IMDb. He well, is, he's out there. <laughs> uh, okay, so I guess that's that. Uh, the shadow, if you like weird violence in James Hong, maybe check it out. Uh... Let's move on and slam some evil. Uh, <laughs> we're moving on to The Phantom, starring everyone's favorite lead, Billy Zane. Uh, I, once again, this was a, a childhood film of mine, I, I guess more into adolescence, because it was a 1996 film, but uh, it feels like I was younger. But, uh, yeah, I haven't seen this in 20 years now, uh, but someone must have. Who did? I did. Um, yeah. This is a film. I, this is like my favorite film when it came out originally in 1996. I saw it opening day with my dad. And um, the Phantom is a... Uh, he's a masked superhero who lives in the jungle. And he wears a giant purple bodysuit. And he wields two guns. And he's a part of this... Um, as explained in the opening backstory, he's a part of this long line of descendants of the Phantom who live out in the jungle to, I guess, patrol evil. Um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it then, rewatching it. Not as quite as doesn't hold up as well as I hoped, but still a lot to enjoy from it. Uh, Sean, you said you watched it as well. Yeah, um, I I enjoyed it. Like I thought it was like of the ones I watched, the most well put together. Like at the best production, um, there, it felt a bit clumsy. Like some of the action stuff did, but Treat Williams was just like such a good character, and uh, it, it just the the cinematography was good. And uh, Billy Zane isn't exactly like a sweeping presence, but um, I think it has like this nice also like neo noir thing, um, but only like I don't know. It has like this melange of different styles, but it has like this really good like. Um, factory shootout thing, which is a staple of that noir style, and um, I don't know. I think it's got plenty going for it, but I think it definitely gets like lagging and boring in the third act. Yeah, I think I, I watched this. This again was another one that I had not seen before, so this is visiting it with no preconceptions or, or kind of memory attached to it. And I think this is definitely this was a pleasant surprise for me because um, it really it's it's known for being a flop. It lost a lot of money when it came out. Um, it's got a, like a 4.9 out of 10 rating on the IMDb. So apparently people just dislike this movie. Um, and it's it's not deserving of that. I think it's it's a pretty fun, pacey film, very kind of Indiana Jones adventure element to it. Again, the period setting, I think it works much better here than in, say, The Rocketeer, which I suspect may have a lot to do with Joe Dante uh, getting an executive producer credit on this. Um, Joe Dante, of course, is, has a huge amount of knowledge of old-school Hollywood films. He's, he's a big fan of like the old monster movies, old horror movies, etc. He's constantly referencing them in his own films. And this film felt a much better integrate for me, the kind of the the old-school pulp sensibilities, where the Rocketeer seemed to kind of be 
I don't know, just awkwardly shoehorning them in for the sake of kind of pretty design and decor and stuff. This felt like it was much more in the spirit of those pulp adventures, much more, uh, what do you say, like in the moment, um, adventurous, fun. Uh, you know, it, and uh, that just kind of carried through for me. I think this was this was definitely, you know, this is one that honestly I think people, if you're just looking for a fun time, this is actually worth checking out. Don't don't listen to the hype, because uh, apparently the hype has decided that since it's lost a lot of money, it's just not worth it. So I would say that's an unfair representation of the film as a general rule. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I wonder what caused it to flop so much more spectacularly than... Well, let's discount the shadow. I mean, nobody really yeah. watched that well, movie. Again, again, I think there's just an element of... like They're not very compelling characters in and of themselves. The shadow and the phantom... I mean, basically you're looking at two guys who wear kind of goofy outfits and they just carry two guns. Like, that's a superpower. Uh, in the shadow is his hypnosis. The the phantom pretty much is... He has a couple of magic powers here and there that kind of randomly manifest, but pretty much he's just a dude in a weird body stalking who just shoots people, which is... Uh, you could just wear regular clothes and do that. Um, well, I think that's a that's a factor is, is, you know, when you're marketing to kids. You know, you're going to see kids wanting to dress up as Dick Tracy or the Rocketeer for Halloween, but is anyone really going to want to throw on that odd purple stocking? Good question. Yeah, I, I, it, I feel, yeah, maybe these films, the, the Shadow and the Phantom particularly, they don't have a lot of cross-marketing potential, and that actually may very well be something that hit them financially. They didn't get the marketing boost to get people into the cinema to watch them in the first place. Yeah, it was kind of staggering how much of a piece of pop culture at the time Dick Tracy was. Uh, it was just ubiquitous. <laughs> uh, well, if we don't have any more thoughts on the matter, let's move on. Uh, that closes out the uh, odd pulp section. Uh, the second one we had was is a little more nebulous. We got a lot of stuff here that was certainly a bigger part of the zeitgeist. Uh, and very informed by Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. Uh, let's start out with one of the biggest cartoon properties of my childhood and probably all of our childhoods, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was a film I saw in the theater certainly uh, probably multiple times and uh, grew up with, and I revisited it recently, not for this podcast, but uh, shortly before, and was kind of surprised by the quality of it. Um, it is kind of an interesting film. Uh, anyone else watch this one? I did. Um, I, I, I got to say, this is this is was kind of the biggest discovery for me. As a, I loved the Turtles growing up. I was a huge Turtles fan, but for whatever reason, I even though I saw this movie as a kid, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And to start off, to find out it's directed by a guy from Dublin, which is weird to me. I never knew that. And then the first production logo that shows up is Golden Harvest. Uh, Raymond Chow is a producer on this, so this is a Hong Kong co-production, which I never knew. Um, so it's kind of a weird uh, introduction to it, and the film, honestly, it really does hold up. It's surprisingly entertaining. It's certainly better than the newer ones that uh, the I've only seen the first of the newer Turtle movies, which I watched late one night in a whim. And honestly, I can remember almost nothing of it, and I could hardly remember anything of it a day or two after it finished it or I'd watched it. It was just a completely anonymous kind of whirlwind of special effects. This has a really good balance of 
hokey special effects that are kind of really pleasant puppets. Jim Henson did a lot of the puppet work of the Jim Henson workshop. Terrible jokes that are knowingly terrible. Um, it keeps things simple and streamlined. It doesn't get bogged down in, in anything, really. It's like a 90-minute cut-and-dry movie. Um, it really it works surprisingly well. It works honestly much better than it has any right to work, I would say. I, I would agree with that sentiment. It, it, I almost see like the kernel of a future era of comic movies. Like it, it actually kind of portends that uh, grim and gritty Nolan verse. Like it, it is a very distinctly more real and dangerous world that the turtles are existing from what I was used to as a kid. You know, where it was just this big jokey cartoon, and this film posits a, it, it, the turtles existing in a very real atmosphere and it is uh yeah it, it can have a stark contrast between the humor at times and the reality of it but the story is very coherent and well put together and it's uh i think quite a good film i mean not not like go seek it out tomorrow but off this list it it, it kind of stands out to me as, as one of the better choices you could make <laughs> so yeah, yeah i didn't Go ahead, Jake. I was just going to say, I've never actually seen any Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, so I um, can't really say much about this one, sorry to say. They've always sort of eluded me in my, my past. Well, I would say if you're going to watch one, this is the one to watch. Um, as much. Which one has vanilla ice in it? Is, is that what's that? That's the second one? Yes, uh, it is yes, the second one. Is. That's yeah. obviously pop culture gold right there. Um you know, but you you could start with the first one. I think that's, and like I say, it's it's just surprisingly well put together in terms of its fights, choreography. It's it's even though it's men in rubber suits, it's special effects fun. I like the puppet work really is great. I I really love like the little Splinter tiny like pre mutant mutation little. They have a little rat puppet of Splinter doing little kung fu moves in his cage, and it's like a really simple puppet, but it just there's a real playfulness to it. It's it's just a very I, I, alluring kind of film on that level. It really draws you in. You kind of get into the spirit of it. Um, so yeah, and it's it's kind of weird to see people like uh, Elias Cotias, or I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, uh, but who I kind of tend to know more from dark dramas like um, Exotica, the Adam McGoyan film, and uh, Crash, the David Cronenberg psychosexual film, to just see him playing uh, Casey Jones or whatever, the, the hockey stick-wielding vigilante um, it's it's kind of an odd ragtag bunch of elements that just really fits together well. It does, and you know, as a kid, I I probably couldn't have like deciphered any difference in quality between the first and second film. But going back to revisit them at some point, it, it's like very stark. The first film, it, it's kind of surprising they ever got it made, considering what a huge license. Uh, Ninja Turtles was at the time because it's it's actually very faithful to its original comic run, uh, but which is quite a bit darker. You know, it was based on uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil, uh, so it, it's one of those things that it's kind of surprising that it got made and it would not get made today with that tone. But it is, yeah, you got to appreciate that it exists more than anything. So, and the second film is where they they said, hey, wait, this is a kid's movie. we got to market this and sell toys, and and they did so. so. Yeah, they, yeah it's, it's always weird for me because I, I grew up in the weird era of Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles because Ireland was subject, uh, since 
England was right next to us, and a lot of the stuff, just because Ireland is a small country, whatever England decided to do in terms of censorship or alterations to films, it just went over to Ireland too. And the British Board of Film Certification at the time, uh, James Foreman, I believe was their, their chairman at the time, was a bit of a lunatic who had decided that ninjas were the like of incredible harm to society. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was converted to Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. He hated nunchucks, so Michelangelo pretty much didn't ever... They like cut all scenes of him having weapons in the cartoon series or replaced it with that turtle grappling hook they had. Uh, it's like there's all these weird things to it. So to see this movie come through again, it's it's just kind of a it's a weird pop curio piece for me. Um, it kind of reminds me of how seriously people took something that really involves a bunch of rubber suited turtle men. Um, just kind of a strange balance of things. Um, yeah, I don't know, just odd. Yeah, yeah, that even uh, found its way into the American series as well around about. Season three of the show, I think they they pretty much got rid of the nunchucks, which was very strange considering the various other lethal weapons wielded by turtles yeah, and the enemies. Yeah, it's weird. Leonardo, I mean, has swords, which he honestly hardly. I think the most prominent use of a sword in this movie is uh, someone chopping a carrot or chopping a pizza with it. The swords are primarily for food distribution rather than for uh, cutting people. It's weirdly, weirdly non-violent element there. Yeah, another thing you'd see often in the series, the swords would be used to cut the barrel off a laser rifle or some such <laughs> nonsense. It's like, okay. Uh, anyhow, we spent too much time on Ninja Turtles. Uh, let's move on to perhaps an even more zeitgeisty film of its time. Uh, Brandon Lee's uh, last film, uh, The Crow. I have seen this maybe once in my life, but uh, did not care to revisit. I, I was never a big fan. It, it always struck me as just very kind of a sad imitation of uh, that era of Burton. But uh, someone must have. I, I watched. I think I was one of the people who was originally assigned to watch this. We tried to branch out and watch as many of them as we could, but I, I was specifically charged with watching The Crow, which I was equal to the task. Um, you know, it's it's. I've seen the. I saw this many years ago again, like when it first came out. It's not. It's a film that's actually. It's not bad. Um, but I. I will couch, like, couch that with some of the films we're going to go on to discuss. I think we, we almost started where we were being overly positive with a lot of these films. I feel the worst stuff's come is is yet to come. Uh, the Crow is. It's definitely got a lot of limitations. Its plot is nonsensical. The dialogue is often atrocious. Uh, it's laced with casual sexism and just random weirdness. Um, it, but it, the art design in it, Alex Proyas uh, was wrote, directed it, who would go on to do Dark City, for example, which really is kind of probably his biggest film or his most successful film for fans. Um, and it really, The Crow is a visually interesting film. It, it does it does catch the eye. It's got a lot of kind of unusual sequences, like very gothic kind of look to it. Um, the action sequences and stuff in it are a little bit bland. It doesn't go very well with a lot of that stuff with the bad guys in it. I mean, it's it's got a kind of an interesting motley crew of villains in this smoky, steamy, gothy New York or somewhere. I, I guess actually it's not New York. It's pretty... Pacific Northwest, if anywhere. I don't know if it's even based in a real place or not. Um, it's actually not a not a bad film, not great. It's it kind of went with the R-rated kind of violence level. Um, it's not particularly gripping, but not terrible. It's I think as as a visual adaptation of a comic book, it's it 
hits the nail on the head pretty pretty well. Uh, the money is up on the screen. It's not a film that's got a bunch of like really big names parading around, just kind of collecting paychecks. I think they they've distributed the the production elements correctly in it. Other than that, the film as a whole, it's not exactly something you really need to see. But I I for me, I would say the crow is not a it's not an abject failure, shall we say? Sure, yeah, well, a film uh, this, with reputation, I would hope not. Yeah, Jake, did you watch this one as well? I didn't watch it for this, but this was a film actually that was I felt like it was always playing on TNT in my teenage years. So every now and then, I'd be flipping through channels, and The Crow would be on. And I'd probably sit down and finish it. Um, I actually really enjoyed watching it a lot. I thought, you know, just being a teen before I knew anything better that this is a very cool film. I enjoyed the guy coming back from the dead and he's immortal and he's killing people who wronged him aspect. But um, I seriously doubt it would hold up well. But, um, you know, from what I remember, I, I, re- I liked it back when I saw it. Yeah, certainly this is the kind of film that if you wanted to do a study of 90s teen pop culture, music, and dressing, this, this would be a key uh, text this is, uh, I think it was Steve who mentioned that it's, to this day at Halloween, there's people who come in dressed like the crow, because it's not that difficult a costume to pull off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, it is not a, it feels like every time I was watching something crow-related on cable, it would be one of the sequels. Uh, usually I'd keep watching if it was that furlong one, because that thing's a real gem. Which was the one that had Iggy Pop in it? Because I remember that being interesting. I kind of almost, if I'd had the time, I always would have pulled that one up again to take a look at it, because I remember that one being not good, but being bad in ways that made it kind of compelling in its own right. I think Ooh, I don't the know. second one. Was that City the second one? Crow- City, City of Angels? Crow- it's either that or Salvation or whatever they're called. Uh, I don't know. I would say I, um, one thing this film kind of impressed on me is it has David Patrick Kelly plays one of the one of the evil goons I just got to say David Patrick Kelly is just he's one of the best uh, bad guy henchmen in cinema history between this and Commando and the Warriors and a few other places he just plays a really good Weasley bad guy you just love to see him getting killed I just remember the main bad guy was doing like a real heavy Gary Oldman thing to the point where I was like, is that, is that Gary Oldman in this movie? It's like, no. It's, it's true. It's like he stole the wig from Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula and put it on. <laughs> Sean, uh, Sean, what did you think of The Crow? Um, I I uh, decided to go uh, as The Crow Flies um, to not watch this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that just let, great. let that one sit there for a little Did, while. Uh, I've I've never seen uh, the crow, and um, for me, it's like it's tied up in like this uh, techno industrial aesthetic that I have never been interested in. Like I know um, I don't know about all of you guys, but I know some of you guys uh, are into like Tool and stuff like that. Um, and that's just, like, never been in my wheelhouse. Um, so, yeah, I've always avoided it. Yeah, it's definitely, this is kind of like a Nine Inch Nails ministry kind of uh, music video come to life. Sure, sure. Uh, and the soundtrack to boot. Uh, yeah, um, moving on, I suppose. we got to keep this thing rolling. Uh, we're toward the end here. We, we cut this off at 
at uh, X Men because that kind of kicked off. You know, actually, be, before we move on, can I just say because because we're talking about Asian like kind of the small stock Asian characters, can we just note that Brandon Lee was could like honestly this was going to be the vehicle that would launch him as a, like a leading Asian American kind of action star, and he died on production of the film in a freak accident. Someone left a live round and a gun. And I just kind of cut that off, and it was it's just sort of one of those things, like, I wonder what could have been. I wonder if, if Brandon Lee could have actually carved out a legitimate career or kind of a, a bigger career off the back of this film. So just that's kind of unfortunate as we're joking about how there's so few Asian-American actors, and they just keep showing up over and over again, recycled in this movies, and The Crow was actually took the chance of giving an Asian-American a leading role, and he didn't survive production. Uh, that is certainly the tragedy of the crow. <laughs> Do you think that its uh, legacy, uh, its legacy lives on because of that in any way? I don't. I don't think people really think about Brandon Lee anymore. It's. It's. I don't know. He didn't really become like a tragic figure in the same. Like I know there was a big. It. I remember when the film came out, there was a big kind of ad. It got a lot of publicity for the movie for that, and it was deemed to be really tragic. Um, I, I don't know, nowadays, like, Brandon Lee didn't really have a big body of work to prop that up, so I don't know if people nowadays even remember. I mean, he's still, Bruce Lee is the Lee. Right, but I think it's still people tie it. People like to squawk on about curses, so, you know, they, they it's all tied in with Bruce Lee's death. and you know, no, it's, it's true, and I guess as a, as a kind of a gothic, emo-y kind of film that it, it works well, that that fits in well. I, in a way, maybe this was a really, as horrible as to say, maybe this was a really positive thing for the movie in terms of publicity. Well, I'm sure, at least for its initial box office. As morbid as that is, it's just a, the way it usually goes. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, as we cut off at X-Men, we're going to uh, the newest film on this list, which is uh, one I... I've never been fond of, but I know uh, some of us are. Uh, let's go with Mystery Men. Uh, who watched Mystery Men for this? Did anyone watch Mystery <laughs> no. Men? I, I think Cuff did. Oh, Steve Cuff I, uh, was supposed to be here, was, uh, was assigned to watch Mystery Men, but he did not. In some yeah, I, weird coincidence, I actually watched it a year ago, but I didn't rewatch it for this. That's more recent than I've seen it, uh, but I mean, I'm. I think Jake and, and I, myself, I think, are the two people who have at least fond memories of this movie of enjoying it. I remember it being enjoyable. I don't know, so I was kind of taken aback to find out that no one else likes it. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, Jeffrey Rush. He's good. Uh, mm-hmm. The rest of the movie, no, Cal Mitchell, never good. Uh, Pee Wee Herman farting a lot, not so good. Uh, <laughs> What about There's, Janine Garofalo? Uh, not her best work. Eddie Izzard as the Disco Boy. That's, you know... Disco Boy, that's the sort of joke you're in for with mystery men, folks. Dis- yeah, Disco isn't dead, Disco is life. There's like a guy who throws forks or something. Uh, man, I don't I like this movie. That's, yeah, that's, I, that's Hank Azariah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think this film works. Like my recollection of, I remember what I enjoyed about it is, I'm not a big comic book reader. I'm not a big fan of superhero movies generally, and this movie just seemed to be a pretty good 
mix of the general mechanics of a superhero movie and that it's got its team of superheroes who basically have kind of uh, gathered to use harness their powers to fight against a definite evil bad guy, the Jeffrey Rush playing whatever Casanova Frankenstein. And um, it's, it's like, it just kind of makes fun of the kind of weird, the weird, tropes of the superhero movie i mean down to the fact ben stiller of course famously he plays what mr furious or whatever and he doesn't really have a superpower he just gets really angry and that's it's not a superpower it's just a character flaw but i mean that's almost like a play on say batman whose superpower is really that he just never sought psychiatric help after his parents got killed um you know it's just kind of it it toys with those things i thought i just thought that it's kind of it's an amusing film in the, yeah, all the superpowers are kind of ridiculous. William H. Macy's what the shoveler. He just hits people with a shovel. Uh, he's a vigilante. It's it, you know, there's this uneasy feeling in the film about why they're doing this to begin with. They go out to fight crime every day uh, with no real qualifications or training, and then they get faced off against a real bad guy. It's it, I don't know. I just it it. I think it's pretty. I just remember it being amusing. I don't know. I could. Well, I haven't seen it in several years, so maybe maybe it's not holding up so well, but. Yeah, maybe I should just keep it uh, with my positive memories. Yeah, if it held up then, it probably holds up now. I mean, I saw it when it first... I think I saw it in theaters, and I hated it then. So uh, I don't know that it's a matter of your opinion changing. Mm. Uh, just so much as it's certainly not my taste. And this is certainly in the post-Burton category, considering it's been rumored for years that it was ghost-directed by Tim Burton. So. Right, I never... You know, I'd never heard that. And honestly, I just... I, can't imagine Tim Burton making a movie like mostly I dislike his films more than this film. Although in the nineties he was still kinda okay. Yeah. Um, by the point of Mystery Men, I think it, it he was not okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say fun fact about Mystery Men, it uh features a cameo by Michael Bay in a rare acting performance and a young Dane Cook. And the film ties into the music video for Smash Mouth's All Star. That it does, yeah. So we got do, that going do, for it. Do with that info with which you will. I think that might feed into my argument that uh, you probably should skip this one. Unless you want to hear All Star for the six billionth time in your life. That's true. Just think it. I hadn't even thought about that. So, yeah, you know what? Fuck this movie. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're on to our last category. Last and best. Because it's got... Spawn in it. But we're not talking Spawn yet. Uh, let's go with Barbed Wire. I didn't watch Barbed Wire. I don't think I'll ever watch Barbed Wire, because why would anyone watch Barbed Wire? But yeah, how about Pam Anderson's starring vehicle in Hollywood? Yeah, this was this was the other film with The Crow that I was specifically tasked with watching. Um, again, I watched this sometime in probably the late 90s, early 2000s on TV, uh, I thought it was pretty ropey and shitty back then. It holds up to exactly that standard. It's kind of a confusing film to me in that it's it's basically it only exists because Pamela Anderson was like a sex symbol at that time. She was really at the apex of her, coming off of Baywatch, and she was just known and the sex tape with Tommy Lee and so on. There was kind of she was. There was uh, there was a market to be tapped in having Pamela Anderson wearing not a lot of clothes. But the film is a bizarrely clean affair. It's not really that sleazy. It's not really outrageous. It's got almost no nudity in it. The violence in it is not particularly strong. It's I just don't understand what happened with this film. I would have thought if nothing else, they would have just gone absolutely overboard and put in like Playboy Mansion style 
just sleaze everywhere. And really, there's nothing. It's just kind of a dull dystopian. It's a remake of Casablanca, effectively, uh, with Pamela Anderson in the lead, if that is in any way enticing to you. And it just kind of it just trundles along. It doesn't have enough money to really realize what it wants to realize, so it's very tame in its kind of depiction. I mean, one of the big weird bad guys of this dystopian outlandish wasteland is just a fat dude who sits in the shovel of a large digger, uh, like, and that's it. Like, he doesn't have makeup or anything to make him look disgusting or deformed or anything. He's just a fat dude who hangs out in a building site. Uh, the film doesn't, it just doesn't really have any memorable elements. It's really crippled, I think, by its budget and crippled by the fact that it doesn't seem to cater to the one thing you would think they would just cater to, which would just be to put lots of naked ladies everywhere. It almost feels like there's sort of this like behind-the-scenes contention that they had where they wanted to make an all-out, super-sexy action film like you're describing, but they're also basing it off of a I mean, I don't know the source material that well. Um, I think they wanted to try to make it more profitable, I guess, by not including all those elements because it's based off of a comic strip. But it, it, it's just, it, yeah, it's, this is a, a dull and terrible film. You, you kind of wonder why they even bothered. Yeah, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't mesh its ingredients particularly well. I, like, it's just... I guess what I would say of it is like it's just another almost direct feeling directive video kind of underfunded action movie. It's slow. It doesn't gel well. The action sequences are really stagey and kind of stilted. It's just man shoots gun, someone falls over, cut to explosion. You know, it's there's no there's nothing to really draft it all together. It's weird because apparently the opening sequence, which is supposed to be like the really should set the tone, which is Pamela Anderson kind of on stage getting sprayed with champagne or water or something, and she's got uh, I mean, she's not topless, but I guess her, her breasts are like, she's got a huge amount of cleavage from her top, but it's like there's no nudity there, particularly not cinema nudity, but the weird categorization of nudity requiring exposed nipples, I guess, you know, which is a weird distinction of itself. Um... The film just it it starts off with that, and you assume that's going to set the tone for it escalating. And instead, it just that's probably the raciest part of the entire film in the first two minutes, and then it, the rest of it's just like watching a cheap, boring action movie. Yeah, you also also after she does that like watery striptease, a guy calls her babe, and she takes her stiletto off and throws it into his forehead and kills him. And and like oh okay so that's this kind of film but then nothing ever lives up to that opening sequence. Yeah, that's that's her catchphrase. It's supposed to define the whole thing, and I, she uses it again towards the end, and and that's it. That's really it's just two places. It just kind of hangs out there, and I don't like the film. Just there's nothing interesting to it, and Pamela Anderson is not charismatic. <laughs> it's just she's not floating this film. Um, yeah, it's. I can't really say that there's any real reason you would ever want to track this film down. Um, even even I remember she did like an animated series a little later, like Stripperella or something, which Stan Lee I think was involved in, uh, which I saw like an episode or two of, and I remember that being more entertaining than this. So, if you have to indulge in some Pamela Anderson stuff, then you know maybe go there. Just maybe get other hobbies. I don't know. Yeah, if you have to go to Stripperella, that's not a good sign. <laughs> I think whenever people get bogged down in 90s nostalgia, I'd just like to remind them that perhaps the most prominent sex icon was Pamela Anderson, this, like, plastic surgery Frankenstein. Uh, and, yeah, 
Maybe snap back to reality and enjoy the fact that we've moved out from such gaudy, horrible things. Uh, Sean, what did you think of Barbed Wire? <laughs> I have never seen Barbed Wire. I'm sorry, Sean. I'm trying to involve you here beyond like walking around in the background, opening creaky doors here. Um, well, you know, Sean, if you ever want to watch the collected cinema or the the collected filmography of Udo Kier, you're gonna to have to sit through this. So bear that in mind. Uh, yeah, is this in the same cinematic universe as um, Nymphomaniac? I haven't seen that, Jake. Have you? you you're a Von Trier fan. Is this? Better, worse, much worse. Uh, oh, oh. Worse the, worse. it's much worse than Nymphomaniac. I'm hardly sure that this qualifies as a film at times. <laughs> <laughs> I think Pamela Anderson would break Lars Montier's tendency toward naturalism. <laughs> yeah, she keeps uh, she keeps trying to do this like this tough girl voice, and it's just so embarrassing the whole time. It's like they programmed a robot to pose and quote unquote be sexy. Yeah, the the early the, like I I gotta admit the first ten like if you're gonna watch the, watch the first ten minutes and then shut it off because the first ten minutes gives you everything you need and part of what's hilarious about it is just watching Pamela Anderson acting as hard as she can and she's really she is trying to act the heck out of being a badass and it's just it's just no it just doesn't work at all which I think you could people could have told her that before the film went into production but there you go. Ah, okay. So that's enough with barbed wire. We we, we shouldn't speak of this anymore. Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk about. Uh, well, we're gonna skip the next one here. So we're moving on to Blade, which I was tasked with for this one. This this will be short and sweet. It it's fine. Uh, Wesley Snipes is kind of fun. The fight choreography is not good. It's it's not a good film at all. Uh, it's still one of these movies that hasn't caught up to CGI. It's kind of hard to watch. It's a lot of uh, computer skeletons just kind of popping out of clouds of dust. Uh, yeah, and the villain is Steven Dorff, who's not not exactly going to give you one of those uh, scene-stealing performances. <laughs> and all in all, yeah, it's just like a weird techno nightclub disaster. But, I mean, it's still perfectly watchable on, like, a, a Sunday afternoon or something. But. Yeah, I, I haven't seen this in forever. I didn't watch it for this, but I, I remember being pretty okay. I don't know. I guess Blade nowadays is kind of more remembered for Blade 2 being Guillermo del Toro's Hollywood breakthrough. Um, yeah, the first, I probably I probably more remember the second one than the first one. It opens with the big blood disco and the techno, and that's... It's I don't know I remember it being fun I haven't watched it again so maybe it sucks right if you watch it now that it's just so hard on the eyes that it's hard to get past that that particular scene especially <laughs> uh yeah that Blade Two has a director this movie is directed by the guy who directed The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and not much Ooh. else <laughs> <laughs> so it's not. Don't yeah let let this one live in your nostalgia I would say because uh, yeah. I don't think it's gonna really uh, hold this, up. Well. This was a bigger hit because I, I as we keep promising we're we're getting towards Spawn and but Spawn was was the first African American kind of comic book hero on the big screen. Uh, Blade came in its wake so that's something to consider. Um, you know plus obviously Wesley Snipes is a legitimate badass because he went to prison. 
So that's something. I mean, for tax evasion rather than like kicking someone's head off. Eh, whatever. You know, we work with what we got. And in this movie, he gets to be a black man, not like a burned turd. <laughs> Uh, although he is certainly in like the Grand Shaft tradition here, he's not exactly a progressive role. <laughs> uh, so we have two more until we get to the the real capper here, and I, I guess I'm gonna keep going on stuff that probably only I watched. Uh, with the biggest budget film on our list, uh, Judge Dredd, uh, Stallone vehicle that. Uh, is pretty infamous at this point. Uh, so wait, 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 wait. wait. Uh, what is Judge Dredd and what's Demolition Man? Can we start there so that I just know, like, going forward? Uh, Demolition Man has Sandra Bullock and uh, Wesley Snipes, and it's about Stallone getting, like, frozen in time and coming out, so it's kind of a fish-out-of-water story. Yeah, Sean, remember, <laughs> in, Sean, in, in Demolition Man... Taco Bell won the franchise wars. I remember in Demolition Man, um, uh, the titular man coming out of like underground or something. I don't know. Yeah, Dennis um, Leary plays a pissed off underground dweller rather than playing a pissed off overground dweller. Uh, I remember like Wesley Snipes is sort of like like just like raining down terror on civilians. Um, I also remember there's like a toilet paper joke or something, visual gag, and then I remember my dad... Oh, yeah. my the dad, lack of um, toilet paper. Yeah, Everyone the uses the three seashells in the future. And I remember it was on TV, and Sandra Bullock was on, and my dad was like, good-looking lady, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Dad. I'm like eight. Um, but, uh, well, he's giving so, you something to reflect on. Yeah, and I don't. I know I've seen Judge Dredd. That's Sylvester Stallone, but um, I don't remember a ton of it. I saw it in the drive-in, um, and I remember like scenes a little bit here and there. But uh, I remember Daylight much more. Ah, Daylight. Let let us never remember. Um, the the confusion lies in the the setting for both films is very similar, and they both inexplicably have Rob Schneider as Stallone's comic sidekick. Uh, I the, the plot of Judge Dredd is utter nonsense. Is something about clones, and uh, this movie's just a whole bunch of scenery chewing. But it is ridiculous. It's really fun to watch now, actually, because it's got uh, such elaborate practical sets and effects, and it's kind of like the last gasp of that. There's there's almost no CGI to be found in this film. It's again, as as Jack was saying with the crow, you you can see the money on the screen with this. It is there, even though obviously they probably poured money into Stallone, but they had more money to begin with. So, <laughs> um, this yeah, it, it's kind of a a fun movie to watch just based on the production alone. But as far as if you're looking for an engaging plot or something remotely faithful to the comics, you're probably going to be quite disappointed. I would stick to the Carl Urban version. Yeah, I was just oh, going to yeah. ask: is is that a is because I've I've only seen the the Carl Urban version, which I was I didn't like it as much as other people, but it was it was an okay time. It was entertaining, but I've never actually seen the the Stallone version. I'm wondering how it holds up. But was this PG-13 movie, if I recall correctly, which seems oh. for Judge Dredd to be a terrible idea? That is a good question. What was this movie rated? Uh, this movie is is kind of 
It is an R, yeah, but yeah. it's it's a soft R. It's not an especially violent movie. It's violent in a Michael Bay sort of explosion heavy way. Hmm. But it is it's almost worth watching again just to kind of see the set design at the time and uh probably just to see Armando Sante. He is he is really ripping into things in this one. This is if Dorf was not delivering on the scenery chewing, Armand Asante is making up for it. He's just all over the place in this movie. Wait, wait. Uh, Dorf is in Dread? No, Dorf was in Blade. Oh, they should just com- combine them. Judge, Judge Bled. Then, the, then we would have Demolition Man. Uh, yeah, so this movie is terrible, but it's... <laughs> This is what I would say. I love yeah. that's you, that's your lofty recommendation. Yeah, this is worth checking out. It's terrible. It's terrible in the right sort of way, except for Rob Schneider, because everything he says is just insufferable. I but Rob, uh, yeah, I think he'll always be terrible in the wrong way. Right. The rest of the movie is so misguided, and yeah, there's just so many people going off the rails, and yeah, it's kind of fun. Anyone else check this out recently? No, I'm sorry. We you all probably fail. should have. You've seen so many. Of the, I think we had like four people watch Tank Girl and only one watch Judge Dredd. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna get into how Tank Girl just, just fucking rocks. So, uh, well, let's get there now. I guess we're done with Dread, so uh, Tank Girl it up. Go see the uh, new Je- the new Dread, not the old one. Well, you, you can't That's, go see it. I would say if you could have gone to see it, you'd be happy. Because Dread 3D go, is perhaps the the finest 3D film I've ever seen. Yeah, go to your Redbox and rent Dread 3D. Yeah, if, as long as you... Provided you bought one of those 3D TVs they don't make anymore. Did I still, or you could go to your uh, Blockbuster kiosk. And get it. <laughs> Okay. Get online with the Netflix and put in your postal address and send them an envelope and we'll send it back out to you. Uh, anyhow, Tank Girl. Speaking of a villain who's chewing some scenery, we got Tank Girl. Uh, I watched it, but someone else started. I don't want to talk about Tank Girl. Um, I, I watched this again. Um, hadn't seen it in years. Remembered it being fine. It's it just for me. It just about passes as fine. I think it's a big missed opportunity to be honest. Because uh, one thing with this film is it it's edited quite frantically. It's supposed to be anarchic and kind of you know devil may care and you know rebellious punk rock kind of film. And it doesn't it doesn't feel like that at all. It really feels like studio executives shaped a lot of it. But it uses like comic book panels for establishing shots and various other elements within the film. And the comic book panels make it look so much more interesting. They, they have these establishing shots of these big buildings and stuff and characters, and they're drawn out as they would be in the comic. And you're like, yeah, okay, let's find out what's happening next. And then it would cut back into the regular film, and it's just kind of dull. No, no one lives up to the promise of those things. So it's like this film perpetually lets you down, but while, while suggesting to you that maybe the comics are actually kind of fun. In fact, based on watching this, I may actually go and read some Tank Girl comics, just see what they're like, because 
I suspect they, they, they have to be more enjoyable than this movie. This movie just kind of, again, it trundles along. It was fairly expensive. It flopped, if I remember correctly. It did not do well in cinema or in the, in the box office. It's kind of got that 90s girl power vibe going on. I think they were trying to tap into the Spice Girls a little bit with this, but it's it's entirely entirely unconvincing on that point. You do have an early major role for Naomi Watts as Jet Girl, so that may be of interest to some people. I don't think they use her particularly well. Uh, if you ever want to see Ice-T in kangaroo makeup, this is your film. Like, really, this is probably the only film that's going to offer that, so that's a big thing to put on the video box. Um, other than that, though, this movie just kind of... It's, it, just, it's, it's, it wants to convince you it's fun and that it's kind of, you know... Uh, what was it, rebellious, and it just, it doesn't feel at all. It just feels like it was kind of cut together roughly and just thrown out onto the market. Uh, who else? I saw this one for sure. I would say that, well, there's a lot of interesting stuff about it. I mean, uh, Lori Petty's pretty great uh, in the titular role, but, uh, yeah, uh, reading about Tank Girl, the comic, I don't even know who the hell thought it would be something they should turn into a, a film. Like, it is. It was drawn by one of the co-founders of Gorillas, the guy who's not in Blur, <laughs> and yeah, that's what he did before Gorillas uh, was Tank Girl, which is apparently known for being disorganized and plotless. And apparently, someone was like, "Yeah, that sounds like a great idea for a, a narrative film," uh, and it wasn't. It's it's. Not very watchable. This is a movie where you cannot see any of the budget on the screen outside of a few props. It's uh, quite ugly and drab yeah. and repetitive. It looks, it looks, yeah, it looks a lot like kind of a cheap '90s music video to the most part. Um, kind of colorful but aimless. Yeah, it it falls in with a lot of these where they kind of evoke like an aesthetic I always associate with the Super Mario Brothers movie, which is a lot of nonsense and yeah industrial and kind of 90s techno and it all of that kind of like blurs together and it, I guess that was one of my takeaways from this was was that comic book films at this stage were kind of at the same place that video game films were and never they never managed to get past that or at least they haven't yet but uh, we'll see maybe in 10 years we'll be looking at nothing but video game films over and over again throughout the year Something God. to look forward to. God help us all. Uh, so, did any uh, Jake, Sean? Again, no I've I've never seen this. I watched it for the first time. I'd say about a year and a half ago or so, and I remember not liking it then because I just felt it's. I mean, story wise, it's all over the place. Like I, I couldn't follow what was going on, and I think at one point there's a, an entire song and dance routine that just stops the film dead in its tracks. Um, and I mean, you, we said that Lori Petty, I guess we all agree she's good in it, but unfortunately this film basically killed her career after appearing in Point Break. I mean, I don't know if anyone else remembers her from anything that she does. There was that Pauly Shore movie. Yeah, In oh. the Army Now. <laughs> okay, I've, I've never seen a single Pauly Shore film, so maybe... Uh, oh, well, we got our next project all lined up. <laughs> um, and she she also has a recurring part on the newest season of Orange is the New Black. Yeah, that's, that's right. true. That's uh, that's kind of a comeback role for her, though, honestly. From... Right, that's like a sound 20 years after <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I think what, what disappoints me about this movie watching is that it's got that kind of... 
girl power element to it. it kind of, it's got a female main character. I mean, both the protagonists, the main protagonists are both women, um, until like, at least until the kangaroos show up, the ice tea kangaroo mutant people. But it's just, it doesn't do anything with it. It's this completely just lip service, kind of just, it kind of uh, what you say, kind of pointing towards these women. It's, it doesn't do anything. It's still very much a male centric movie. Um, it's just kind of disappointing. It just, I feel like you could have made a movie like Jake says that there's a musical number in the middle, which apparently they cut down a lot based on audience reception. Uh, so it's only kind of it's it's kind of only survived in the movie a little bit, and it kind of I don't know if it kills the film dead in its tracks. It to me, it just feels like that's where the film should have been the whole time is just being more chaotic and weird uh, but instead it's chaotic and weird because they're trying to put order onto it rather than embracing an actual kind of disorganized structure and really bringing out the character or bring out the ideas of the comic it just feels like it feels like it's a messy movie that a bunch of kind of grown-ups came in and fixed and the end result is this really boring blasé kind of film that doesn't it just feels disorganized and empty and I wonder, I don't know if maybe there was ever going to be a good film. I don't know if what they shot was any better, but the, certainly the final product feels like no one got what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, at least Malcolm McDowell got paid. That's true. That's always important. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, shall we move on to the main event? <laughs> How did this become the main event? I, I don't know. Well, I don't know if I said on the air last time, but I was certainly saying off the air that, that I was positing that perhaps Suicide Squad was the worst comic book film ever made. And, well, it, I'll be damned if I wasn't proven wrong uh, when we did our research for this episode. Yes, uh, there was a little film called Spawn, that came out uh, sometime in the 90s. I'm not going to look up when, because I don't want to... It was 97, I believe. Uh, the Year Jeez. of Our Lord, 1997. Uh, yeah, this movie is just unfathomably bad. I couldn't tell you what it's about. The editing is incomprehensible. The effects are some of the worst I've ever seen in my life. Which and, is ironic. Uh, uh, it's ironic because I just pulled up an IMDb to verify the year, and the poster for it says the special effects movie event of the year. <laughs> uh, we'll probably make the the image for this episode uh, the devil from Spawn or whatever the hell he's called, like Malga Bogli <laughs> God forbid we just call it fucking Satan. It's no, it's a reference to Dante's Inferno, so it's deep. Um, oh. that, that's exactly what this film is. It's just like, oh, I, I've never read any of the Spawn comics. They couldn't be worse than this movie. This is, because uh, I mentioned earlier, right near the beginning, where I saw about the shadow, and one of the things I liked about the shadow was it had early kind of CG images, and they kind of used them gently to kind of tease out a couple of effects that you could not do with practical effects. Just And they're just little things, texturing the scenes. You know, it's not big deal or anything. At this, and the CG quality obviously is very low because it's very in its infancy at this point. This movie, which is only made like three years later, is just a wash in CGI. Every, there's whole scenes in CGI in it. It's like The Matrix Reloaded, but five, six years prior to that. I mean, it, it just looks like a really shitty video game. Yeah, it legitimately could have been from fucking Doom. It looks like total shit. I was going to say Doom even looks better than this movie yeah, does. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I guess yeah. if you projected Doom Doom onto a giant screen, then it would look this bad, perhaps. But, man, 
Yeah, I mean, the the big devil we're talking about, I mean, he's a completely CG creation. There's no puppets or anything. He's literally... And, they, it's the, and the character design of it is so weak, they don't even bother lip-syncing him or matching up lip-flap for the character. He just, they just had a guy just talk over footage of this big, shitty-looking devil... Uh, it it really does look like the those little cut scenes you get, you know, when you, you like I remember in the nineties you get your your CD home and you install your video game and it starts with a production logo and then has a little cut scene to like bring you into the game. Uh, this movie just looks like one of those terrible little cut scenes, but it runs for an hour and forty minutes or so. God, even it's, the opening credits like made my eyes bleed. The, the yeah, credits. and all the all the the text in the credits is illegible. Yeah, like you the can third. Yeah, you can actually read the credits at certain points, which I'm feeling like surely one of the writers' unions or the actors' unions must have lost their shit over it. But I don't. Maybe no one wanted to be known to be involved in this movie. <laughs> if for some reason, like all the names, there's like random spaces in the middle of first and last names, like in the middle of the name itself, and all the letter ends are capitalized and flipped backwards, and not every other letter is lowercase. It's atrocious. <laughs> Yeah, and it glitches and like pops around, and then the end credits roll to the left and the right, just kind of to keep moving. It it is actually I actually tried reading some of the end credits, and there were legitimately certain names I couldn't pick up. They it just glitched out while I was trying to focus on reading them. So that's an interesting technique. Wow, well, I, you tried to read the end credits? I tried to hit stop as fast as you I was. To be fair, I was checking who provided some of the music on it, and it was, <laughs> music credits were just glitching out so badly. It was like, okay, I know I know the Orbital and a few others, but I was like, who else did music on this? It's got an interesting soundtrack, actually, in that it seems to be, the entire soundtrack seems to be uh, electronic artists, kind of big beat electronic artists, with uh, cameo uh, playing by like heavy metal artists, so it's like Kirk Hammett of Metallica playing with Orbital, and um, I'm trying to think what what other ones they have in there. Um, oh, they're, I've they're... got it up here. We've got Marilyn Manson with the sneaker pants. <laughs> yeah, you see, like, cause that's something I wanted. The director is Mark A. Zippity Doo Um <laughs> the, that's... We, you know what? We haven't even like hit the worst thing about this movie, just John Leguizamo. <laughs> I and feel. I, I don't know, like, he's terrible, obviously, but at the same time, it's like no one no one told him to stop, and he's just, I don't know what you would do with He plays a farting, pudgy clown, so I don't know what else he was meant to do. He makes poop jokes, and he's evil incarnate, supposedly. So, yeah. I mean, Leguizamo just kind of, he does something, and right, the yeah, director like... didn't tell him not to do it anymore, so... Yeah, he's simultaneously the worst and best part of this movie because at least he fucking gave a shit. Like, Martin <laughs> Sheen's is like comatose. They say, according to the IMDb triv- uh, trivia page for this, Martin Sheen appeared in this movie like he actually really wanted to appear in this because he wanted to appear in a comic book adaptation. And he just looks like he just could not get out of there fast enough. And all he's doing is growling. Him and Michael J. White are just growling at each other for a hundred minutes. <laughs> like I, this is the sort of role where you could not distinguish between Martin Sheen and Joe Estevez. <laughs> and there's Apocalypse Now. There's at least two separate Apocalypse Now references in the movie too, just because mm-hmm. Martin Sheen is in there. So at one point, John Leguizamo says, "I love the smell of burning asphalt in the morning while shooting rockets at asphalt." So that's pretty. That's pretty clever. And then later on, John Leguizamo again says something about how he hoped that Spawn would usher in the Apocalypse Now. 
and that's the actual line in the script. Just evoke that uh, to remind us that Martin Sheen has given a shit on previous films. Sean, what are your thoughts on Spawn? Yeah, that's watched, my line. I watched it uh, uh, when it was on VHS with my brother, and I don't really remember much other than some of the graphics. And I, I, I was trying to think if I even remember liking it or not, and I think my brother liked it, but, I mean, he was... What year did this come out? 97. 97. Yeah, he was like 14, so or 15 or something like that, so it's like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and again, this is this is an awful... I like that, Sean, you say graphics, because I think that's a good sense of how this film works. It's not really... There's not images, it's not cinematography, it's graphics, and it's not good on that. It's like, you almost wish you could open up the control panel of the film and fix shit, but unfortunately it's impossible. Um, the other weird thing about this film that I think really works against it is that apparently I, I watched the PG-13 cut, I think the, the theatrical cut, because this was actually cut for to PG-13 in for cinema, for theatrical release, and it did make its money back. It actually like made a significant profit, which is depressing when something like The Phantom didn't, when it's a much more uh, elegant film, if nothing else. Um, so it's, it's kind of like this weird film that's supposed to be dark and violent, and they cut it to PG-13, and it's not particularly dark or violent. It's just really dull. Um, again, the character is not particularly interesting. I mean, I think we've, we've alluded to the fact that the plot is borderline incomprehensible at points. It involves uh, Michael Jai White getting, he dies, he's an assassin for the government, and he dies, he gets double-crossed and killed, and he goes to hell, and then he comes back out of hell. And But he I don't know why, because he's supposed to lead hell's army, so hell, like the, the dominions of hell specifically ordered people to murder him so he could be brought to hell so they could recruit him but then he's not in hell anymore I, if does, did anyone know why that happened was there a reason for that no once he got back I don't know what the hell was supposed to be happening like what was the plot like <laughs> beyond I, I mean beyond him coming back he was just like and now you're gonna lead hell and he's like fuck that shit <laughs> and then the clown farts at him and they fight a bunch and then <laughs> Like, they're trying to, like, dupe him into killing Martin Sheen to release a virus bomb to kill everyone. But what the hell does that have to do with leading Hell's army in the first place? And, yeah, they never, uh, they never explained that. Uh, yeah, so the plot really makes almost no sense. It's really awkward in very early on in the scene, uh, or in the film, Martin Sheen introduces uh, the main character, Mike Jai White's character, as he's the best, and he just growls that, uh, you know, just in, to let us know that he's the best. He then t- literally to White's face tells him that his character is a borderline psychopath and a killing machine, uh, like just in case he didn't know that already, and that's basically really for the audience to, I guess, let us know that's what he is, even though he's an assassin for hire. But then he really lo- the whole film hinges on him really loving his wife and daughter that he has. So he's a borderline psychopath who has a wife and daughter that he would sacrifice everything for. The film makes very little sense at any point. It just it looks like they just threw uh, like. Uh, prompting cards just in a blender and they just pulled out stuff at random from what came out. Yeah, there's like a glowing hobo named Cogliostro who helps him along the path. Oh god, and every time he appears he's got that garish green glow around his body. <laughs> and his hand it's, turns into a knife or something. It's like yeah. they took the script for Robocop and the Crow and they put him in a blender and then they printed him off of a computer that was simultaneously running a copy of Doom. And that's what you get. 
Uh, it's, this is an at, interesting one. And I looked into the comic a little to see if I could parse out what was supposed to be happening, and that seems equally incomprehensible. I'm just going to chalk the whole thing up to the 90s fucking being shit. Yeah, and I mean, that's I got, what I was Oh, sorry. Go yeah. ahead, Jack. No, well, I'm just saying. Like, I was again. This this has the honor of being. This is the first African American comic book character brought to the screen, and it's it's terrible. But I mean, that's kind of like that's almost notable. But then I found out later on, reading into this, that apparently his his Spawn's best friend in the film is uh, a white guy, um, who's played by DB Sweeney. Um, in the comic book, he's an African American character, but studio executives felt that if there were literally if there were two African American characters who were friends in the film, that would make that would possibly mislead audiences into thinking that this movie was only for African Americans. So they changed his ethnicity, which is the kind of cynical, awful bullshit that I think really typified this movie. Is that's. Those, that's what you're dealing with, basically. If you go in with that in mind, that's the movie you're getting. Yeah, probably not the best to just be like, hey, it's our first black superhero, let's burn his face off. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, this movie is just, a, no, no, please, never again. Uh, it is it is worse than Suicide Squad. I mean, and you said that, and I was kind of I'd seen this a couple of years ago or several years ago, and I can remember it being bad. But I was like, no, I can't be worse. Suicide Squad really sucked. This is this is surely just going to be kind of your standard run of the mill bad. But no, it really excels. It is. I mean, and again, almost like the, the video games, it has like this terrible voiceover that just cuts randomly in and out. We don't even know who the narrator is, and it's just to cover up. I guess to to give you some sense of what's happening in the movie because the movie can't tell the story itself. It's just horrible. Yeah, it sure doesn't. I don't know. Uh, well, it, it seems like we're going long. I don't have a timer on my thing here, but that'll that's okay. So what I'm going to do is we're going to skip putovers, except for Sean, since he's not said anything <laughs> this entire podcast. We're going to give him a forum to put over whatever the hell he wants. Sean, what are you going to give to our good listeners this evening? I have recently rewatched Winter Light, a uh, 1962 film by Ingmar Bergman. Um, that is, uh, it, it's always been one of my um, top ten films or whatever. Like, it's always been like one of my favorites. But sometimes, like when you when something's just been on your list for like so long, you you're like, oh, I wonder like if that's actually one of my favorites. But I watched it and. Um, and it's just one of those movies that has sort of like grown with you or like, I mean, as I've become like, uh, albeit minorly, um, uh, smarter with age or just like more experiences. Um, I sort of just realized how, how insightful and how, um, I guess just profound, um, like Bergman, uh, Bergman's script is. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I'm putting over is this uh, movie from 1962 about a priest who loses faith in uh, in God and humanity. And so, uh, yeah. so would you consider Winter Light to be something of a Spawn prequel? Yeah, I was gonna say I felt the same way about Alan B. McElroy's script for <laughs> Spawn. <laughs> yes. Okay, wow. I'm I'm gonna rewatch it. I remember really liking it too, but with keeping that in mind, that's really gonna it's really gonna change how I view this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like I mean the um 
the acting, there's just like little things that I didn't pick up on before, and just like rewatching the acting and just seeing like it's just this 82 minute movie, and um, it's there's just it feels like there's like three scenes in the movie, but um, there's plenty more, but it's just really, really good. It's impressive. That it's 82 it minutes. Out. It's shorter. It's shorter than any of the movies we just watched, and <laughs> so bear that in mind if you have limited time. Ah uh, yes. Well. I know things are a little more joyless when I'm at the wheel here, but uh, we had to adjust on the fly. Apologies if our audio quality is a little off. Uh, but if you do enjoy listening to the product we put out so vigilantly, uh, you know, go ahead and rate us on iTunes. If you could give Optimism Vaccine uh, five stars, that's going to increase our visibility. Maybe we'll have a few people listen once in a while. Uh, beyond that... You could reach several of our writers on Twitter. Uh, how about Jack? Where are they going to find you on that particular social media platform? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at effigy105. Uh, Jake? I'm at Jake Tropila. My first and last name, Tropila, is T R O P I L A. Uh, Sean? M R G L I N I S. Merglinus. Uh, okay. And, you know, you could also follow Optimism Vaccine on Twitter as well, or on Facebook, you know. Uh, that one might be a little dated, but that's where I hang out. Uh, and you, if you have any suggestions for future topics, uh, you want to give us any feedback, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Well, you can get us at optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for listening. This was fun, guys. Let's do it again in a week or two. All right. Good.